In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then from the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that your word is is old and and was written to other people and spoken to other people, but it it contains your power and is for us and is still lively, uh, full of all of your authority and power. And we just pray that you would help us to listen Pray that the words wouldn't just fly past our ears, past our lives, but that we would truly hear and see. Father, we need your help for that. And I pray that you would help me to speak alongside with your word and not against the grain of it. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us and being with us this morning. We pray that your name would be lifted up and glorified. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I just want to add my thanks to everybody who came to help serve at the middle school yesterday. I wasn't there. I heard it was great. Um, I had told my dad months ago that I would go to a Braves game with him because he got these super special tickets. Let me tell you, I've never experienced this in my life. Do you know there's a room in stadiums where people just eat food for free? (laughs) It was incredible. And then... Uh, uh, we were sitting like right behind, home, almost right behind home plate, and the Braves won like right at the end of the game with a home run. I was directly in front of me. I almost knocked my 63-year-old father to the ground. He's three days away from a knee replacement surgery. I almost knocked him. Oh, that's true. That's not an exaggeration. I almost knocked him to the ground or into these other ladies that were next to us. My voice is a little tired this morning. This is what I'm saying, and this is why. It was because I was having fun, and you guys are spreading mulch, and I'm really grateful uh, that you were doing that. Um, I have a friend uh, who is on, uh, he's a pastor at Passion City Church in Atlanta, um, Louis Giglio's church, and uh, he was walking, they have 
many large properties. And he was walking me around one of their newer buildings. They had so much nice stuff, so much nice stuff that we could really use, especially for kids. And um, I just want to be here. I, I love you guys. And I, I don't want his job at all. I feel like I have the best job in the world. And it was a, I was eager to get home to be here with you this morning. And I was eager to be here in this. Um, Jesus has been teaching us this summer to pray this particular way. And we've been going long and slow through it. Hopefully, as, as you've become reacquainted maybe with Jesus' prayer, I, I know there's people that I've talked to, and I, I probably would have said this myself, that um, you know, if you, didn't, if you didn't grow up in certain corners of the church world, maybe you just have left the Lord's Prayer behind. You know it's there, you know it exists, but you don't really pray it. Um, but I, I really believe that the Lord's Prayer is kind of the, the template, the model to teach us to pray well and to pray again and again. And there's not something just memorize and move past. There's a wealth, this is a, there's a home for our prayer life here with Jesus. And this line is the way that we finish it together. Now, probably most of your versions of the Bible, if you open to Matthew chapter 6 to read the Lord's Prayer, this line isn't even there. It might be in your footnote. It might be in a margin. If you read the King James, uh, and some of you feel we all should be, um, it, it is there. Um, because there's, there's sort of some questions whether it was there originally. And that's what there's questions arise when your only form of copying is hand copying and not Xerox copying. But the church has pretty much always prayed this, whether you think it's in Matthew chapter 6 or not. We have early, early, early record of the prayer ending this way. And so we continue to pray it this way. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And, and so we, we open by reading Isaiah chapter 6. It's one of the most famous visions of what the glory of God might look like. Isaiah uh, is sort of knocked on the head with a vision of, of God seated, enthroned in the temple, but also his throne room. Those are overlapping images in the scriptures. And it's in their mind that the temple is the largest building in the world. It's, it's more massive and impressive than anywhere else. And, and the, the edge of God's robe fills the place. That's how big and massive he is. And the angels are just singing together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with the glory of God. It, the angels don't say, hopefully one day the earth will be filled with the glory of God. It's, it's not maybe, uh, it's not like a projection, like if everything goes well, the Everything will be filled with the glory of God. What the angels are proclaiming over and over, over again is this, is this declaration of fact. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. And uh, this, is, this is comforting. And it is challenging at the same time. Because it's a comfort maybe if you read the news. If you have eyeballs and you watch the world, it, it is comforting to hear that actually the world is filled with the glory of God because it doesn't look like it. 
There, there is a real mismatch between our experience with what we observe of the world and this statement that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. And we should bear in mind that for Isaiah, this is a mismatch. He was not walking around in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5 or for the entirety of his life saying, wow, look how glorious the world is. He's living in a world which Israel is itself questioning whether the God of Israel is watching, whether he's on the scene, whether he's paying attention, whether he likes them anymore. And what happens in Isaiah's vision is sort of the, the veil of the world is, is pulled apart in Isaiah is seeing things for the way that they actually are. That's, that's the claim of the scriptures, is that Isaiah is actually seeing how things are. And for us, it is, it is comforting news. It is, it is an item of faith, certainly. Because if you look for evidences, you know, on a good day, you can see a good sunset or a good sunrise. You can see a beautiful scene in nature. You could find a nice vista. You could find friendships. You could see the love of a child for a person who doesn't even seem to deserve love. Um, these little angles might give you hope that there is actually glory in the world, but the vision that Isaiah has is even bigger than that. It's not just little peaks or windows or glimpses or glances of glory. It's that the glory of God fills the biggest building you can imagine, and it's so overwhelming that, that these supernatural beings, all they can do is just keep talking about it over and over and over and over again. And it doesn't seem like we live in that world. That world that Isaiah describes does not feel like our world. And so Isaiah's vision is a comfort to us because the angels are speaking in the present tense and it is our world that they are speaking of. And it doesn't mean that all the other stuff that we're seeing is fake. It's not an illusion. We're not supposed to pretend that all the evil and brokenness in the world does not exist. We don't have to pretend about ourselves, that the things that we sense and feel inside of us are not real and true. It is saying at the same time to a people who are facing down enemies and exile that, that the world is scary and fraught and broken and very much not as it should be. And the earth is filled with the glory of God. The glory of God is not someplace else. It's not far away. It's not shot up into the sky somewhere that if we could find a big enough ladder or a or strong enough rocket ship, hopefully we could get to the place where God's glory is. The whole earth is filled with God's glory. And even if we can't see it or sense it, there is hope for us that what is true will be the thing that is entirely true about our lived experience. And also, it is a challenge. This declaration that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God is a challenge because not only do we not see it out in the world, but we very much do not live like it is true. We, we are like the pre-vision Isaiah. Even though we have Isaiah's vision spread in front of us or on our phones or in our podcasts, if you listen to those about Scripture, even though this vision is known to us, if you're like me, we, we pretend like it does not exist. We, we don't, even if we would say with our rational mind, 
This is something that I believe to be true. If you're like me, we don't care. Just the idea that the, the God of majesty is enthroned and all glorious in nature and power. I need to get my children to bed. That is what I am doing today. I need to go to work. I need to submit a report. I need to deal with annoying neighbors. I need to deal with overly nice neighbors who I can't compare to. The, the, the mundane of our lives becomes the only thing that is real to us. And we live not in light of this vision that Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6, but we live in light of the vision of our own glory, the territory of ourselves that we must defend, the majesty of our own will which we must impose. I, uh, I, I watched a movie this past summer. <clears throat> I have kids, or four kids. I watch kids' movies. It happens. That's actually mostly what I watch now, unfortunately. I really like movies. Anyway, um, Pixar's Elemental. You know this movie? Uh, it didn't make a big bang when it came out. Um, very weird. Um, it's a world where the, the kind of classical elements that make up the world, earth, wind, fire, and water, not the band, earth, wind, and fire, earth, wind, fire, and water, are embodied. All the people in it are either one of these four elements. And uh, it, the main character is a, is a fire person. Her name is Ember, of course. Fire. Uh, and she lives in an immigrant community. Her, uh, her father comes from whatever. Oh, Fireland. That's right. It's from Fireland. Ireland, Fireland. Um, he comes into the big city and he opens up a shop and, and they run this, um, it's like a New York City bodega in this imaginary, imaginary world. And he, his dream is to turn over the shop to Ember. And uh, she's pumped about it. She just is really bad at customer service. She literally erupts at the annoying people. <laughs> Which I get. And then there's also uh, there's a, the, a water character named Wade. Wade, this is water. It's a forbidden love. They fall in love. Water, fire. How can this possibly work out? It does. Don't worry. <laughs> but but it, it, you think that this the central sort of conflict of the story is going to be about how can Wade and Ember end up together. But really, at the core of Ember's problems, her eruptions, are her own realizations that she doesn't want the life that her father wants for her. She wants to make glass faces. It makes sense. She watched the movie. And so the, the crucial moment of conflict is not, are Wade and Ember going to end up together? It's her having to disclose to her father, I don't want the dream that you have for me. Um, and of course she tells him, and of course she's, uh, I just wanted you to be happy. You know, I've ruined the movie for you. You can still watch it. 
they end up together, and she goes off to pursue her glass-making dreams. And the movie ended, and I just I thought about it, and I was like, this is like the most American version of this story. Because the, the worst thing that can happen to this girl is that she is not able to be true to herself. The assumption is, as you're watching the story, is of course she should sacrifice the desires and will of her family to pursue her own true desires. Like As Americans, that is the story that we live in all the time. But a large portion of the world would say that is the wrong version of the story. That is an entirely individualistic reading of that story. Many, many cultures in this world would say, of course you sacrifice yourself for the good of your family. Of course you sacrifice your individual ambitions for the honor of your father. And that sounds so foreign and strange to us. And yet our reading that you should sacrifice the honor and ambitions of your father for your own individuality is itself just a kind of cultural claim. And yet we just assume that this is the intrinsic nature and good of the world, that you should live for yourself. And that anything that stands in the way of your own individual and personal happiness is at best a fairy tale conflict that you must overcome to find true happiness. At worst, it is oppression and slavery. And anybody who stands in the way of your personal pursuit of glory doesn't understand and is in no ways your friend. And they could never be a good father to you if they would say, you do not even know yourself well enough to pursue your own ambitions. We are so deeply enmeshed in this story of individual glory that for us, it is the world, it is the oxygen we breathe, it is the water we swim in, and it primes us to be the kind of people who can read Isaiah's vision where somebody else is enthroned high and lifted up and who somebody else's glory fills the earth and not our own. And we much prefer to live for our own glory. Other cultures and places will make their own version of this mistake because it is the human bent to see the picture of God's glory and to cast it aside. You can't care about it because you can't believe that it's actually good. We fundamentally reject by nature, habit, and cultural training that we are better off with ourselves at the center of the story. And so we are challenged by Isaiah's vision. I don't want to live as if Isaiah 6 is a real and true insight into the nature of reality. 
I want to live as if I am the king. But the thing that is completing the picture for us is also the thing that will win you into understanding that it is not just God enthroned in power that is meant to compel you. It is instead what you see what Paul writes in Philippians 2 that is actually the thing that will kickstart your heart in a life of love and glorification. Because what Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2 is that Jesus is identified with the one enthroned. And what Jesus does is he does not count all of the things that are his as the one and only truly rightfully enthroned one, as the things to be clung to, but instead empties himself of all that is rightfully his and takes on the form of a servant lives a life of obedience and goes to the most shameful death that humanity could imagine, rejected and naked outside of the city for all to see on display in the shame of his defeat. And that is the glory of God. Jesus' friends cannot imagine this. As Jesus is teaching them this prayer, they cannot imagine this as they are walking with him. He will explicitly tell them, this is what is going to happen, and their brains cannot receive what he is saying. They, they, will, they will give him all the credit in the world and give him all the authority in the world and give him all the honor in the world, but when Jesus says this thing, this is how I will show you who I really am, and the nature of my glory, they argue with him and say, you are wrong. You do not see rightly. And the whole argument of, of the Gospels is that the disciples are the ones who are deluded. They are the one living behind a veil. They don't see actually what the glory of God really and truly looks like. They don't see it until it is right before their eyes. They can't even see it when Jesus is actively on the cross. All they see is the writing of their death on his death. If this one is not the one, the pathway to glory, the road to glory, if this is not the one, then we're doomed. There is no more glory in the world. But it is when Jesus is resurrected that they look backwards at what they have already and previously seen. And they recognize that Jesus in the moment of his crucifixion is not experiencing defeat. He is experiencing his enthronement in power. And it is his death. It is his suffering, it is his servanthood, it is his loneliness that actually puts on display his own great glory. Because the God who is enthroned in power and surrounded by angels and whose glory fills the whole earth, he has made himself so small and weak and fragile and perilously killable for the sake of his own great love for his people. 
And in that vision, they see finally the great glory of God. Isaiah saw a, a only a pale reflection. You can read the scriptures, you can read Isaiah 6, and you can think, man, I really wish I got to see a glimpse of, gl of the glory of God like that. I wish I got to be overwhelmed by an avalanche, a tidal wave of light and power. That's what I wish I could see. But the truth is, Isaiah's vision is not as good as what you can see. Isaiah is touched by a coal, by the angels. He is, he is seeing and sensing what he himself knows to be true. I am not able to stand in the presence of the great and glorious one. And Isaiah sees only a shadow. In his vision, it's a cleansing with a coal. And all he's seeing is a pointing forward, a signpost in the general direction of what must necessarily happen and is entirely better than anything that Isaiah got to see. It's not a coal that's pulled out of some fire in the heavens of heavens. It is the Holy One Himself that would touch your lips. To make you holy. It, it, it is not the heat of some lamp that would purge the people of God. It only turns out that it is the, it is the very fire of the heavens himself, the Holy Spirit, God's own presence, who he would give to his people in our own dusty and earthy fragility to fill you with his own life. It is the great and glorious one who's crucified as a servant because he loves you. The glory of God is not just his raw power enthroned. The truest, most clear vision of God's own character that God would want you to see is not Isaiah's vision. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified for us and for our salvation. The generosity of a God who needs nothing and would give everything to you. A poor beggar. And ahead of time, before Jesus even does this, He teaches you to call this enthroned majesty Father. He teaches you that you can live a life where you know that this one, the enthroned one, he is your Father who is not far off. He is in the heavens, which is all around you and at hand. He teaches you to bring all of your most mundane needs, the needs that in fact drive our daily lives and push us in to a life with our head down. He says, give them to your father and ask for him to provide for you. The things that make you dirty, that made Isaiah dirty, that make me dirty, that make you unable to stand in front of the throne of majesty, he teaches you to give them to your father 
and ask him to forgive you. He teaches you to see this one and let this one deliver you from all the evil that would put its hands over your eyes and would seek to ruin you and ruin the world because he will deliver you. He is teaching you to pray with this vision of glory before you. This is what God looks like. And so when you pray this thing, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And if you're like me, you feel that you must pray this over and over and over again for the entirety of your life because you are just so bent and habituated to making life about your own individual quests and your own individual pursuits. Jesus is not standing in front of you ready to put his foot on your neck and bend you into submission until you see and feel the weight of his glory. He would extend to you his own pierced hands his own sacrificial goodness and he would say surrender to me this is the one who you're surrendering to this one the crucified one the resurrected one the one who would take the form of a servant so that you would be his and so today, you are being invited to the surrender of this doxology. I mean, it's unavoidable. When you pray it, when we pray it together, it does say to you, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Not mine, not me. It is a surrender and a loss. You can't have your own anymore. Jesus is teaching you that. But you will not lose yourself in his care. You do not end up in a net loss in this surrender. It is in the context and under the confines of his own glorious, sacrificial, generous love that you will ever only find the thing that you are pursuing in all the cravings of your life. And so you are free. You're free to be totally honest about who you are. I do not have my life together. I'm still pushed by sin from within and without. And I can name them for you. And I don't have to be afraid and ashamed to do so. Because Jesus is the one who's already ripped himself open for my good. And he has become the coal that has touched my lips. What do I need to hide from you or from anybody else that he has not already seen? I am overwhelmed by the state of the world. I do see the darkness that presses in on my life and on the world around me. I'm not delusional. I can see it everywhere. We don't have to lie to each other. And we don't have to feel the weight of our own individual quest. My job, my vocation, the way that you respect me, the life that my children live, the stuff that I accumulate, the experiences that I get to have, none of those things that you and I are so naturally prone to accumulating and defining ourselves with, they cannot bear the weight of this quest. 
And many of you are right now in the middle of pursuing it until its very end. And you are so dissatisfied. And you think something is wrong with you. You think there must be something uniquely wrong with you because your spouse, the person you're dating, the person you can't get to date you, your vocation, your, your experiences, your trips, your possessions, your security, your counseling program, all of these things, they're just not working particularly for you. There must be something wrong with you. The only thing that's wrong with you is that you are not his. None of those things can do it for you. And if you continue to pursue the delusion, the satisfaction of your own glory, you will die enslaved to many and every good thing that you can get your hands on. Because it will never be enough. It will never be enough for you. And in Jesus, you can be free. The glory is what you are longing for and craving. But it is not your own that will fulfill you. It's Jesus's. The lie would be that he would enslave you and rob you of your identity. The truth is, you will never most fully be yourself as you were meant to be. Until you stop your quest for bottomless glory in yourself. And you can only find it in the infinite glorious one who would serve you and love you and die so that you can be with him and feast on his life forever and we all get so distracted from this truth if you are here today and you're a Christian you say I knew I know this stuff I knew it I've already I've answered all the Sunday school questions I knew this and I'm here again like I did it again I, I tried a new thing I tried an old thing more. I've tried to manage my own secret sin. I've tried to manage my own secret quest. And here I am again. It is for you that the servant God came to die. And he loves you. He's, he's seen you at your very worst. You may think your worst is right now. You may think it's a week ago or a year ago or whatever. He's seen you worse than you even know to see yourself. And in that state, he loves you. And he died for you. And he invites you even now into his own glory. Do not torment and punish yourself thinking that it will make you clean. He doesn't want that from you. He doesn't require it of you. Just come home to him. And if you are here today and you have been down this road without Jesus for the entirety of your life, you 
are not going to find the finish line that you're looking for. You have been to many false summits in your life already, thinking you've arrived and realizing there is yet just a little bit further to go. And that's never going to go away. You will not arrive without Jesus. You'll just be hungry forever. And that is not what he wants for you. You, you, you may have rejected him outright a thousand times. You may have ignored him and never really had anything to do with him in your life. And this is the truth. That the enthroned majestic one would become a servant and die for you. He loves you. And he wants you to come home. It is his great glory that he died and was resurrected for you. Stop withholding yourself from him. Stop trying to fix yourself or punish yourself enough. He is your atonement, your punishment, and your gift all in one. And this is the glory of God, that you would come and be with him. And you don't have to be hungry anymore because there's always enough at his table. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for teaching us to pray this way. We need it, not just once, but for the entirety of our lives. I'm so grateful to you for your kindness and generosity. Father, I pray for those of us, Christian or not, who are in this room and have pursued our own vain ambitions, who take good and, and true things about the world and about ourselves, and we've tried to hang on them and them alone, the whole weight of our dreams and our longings. We've aimed so much of our quest for glory at our own discernment, our own appetites, our own selves. And we're sorry. Father, for those who are, who've known you and feel so ashamed to have been, been here again, who've spun out and feel like they should be better than this, that they feel like they should be, be beyond this, I gotta, I pray that they would see the great truth of the gospel this is the reality, the magnitude of what we are facing. You always knew it and you love them deeply and you will love them to the end. God, I pray that they would not be kept in bondage by the lies of the enemy and the torments of their own desire to fix themselves. And God, I pray that you would bring them home. And Father, I pray for those who've never known you, who today are facing the reality of this incredible gulf of, of desire and longing that the world cannot satisfy. Father, I pray that you'd help them to see that the, there is a dead end at the end of a cliff, at the end of their own ambitions. God, I pray that you would save them, that you would deliver them away from the danger of that and that you would bring them home. 
Father, for those who are here today and, and they are on that road and they are not quite sure what to do with you today, but they are feeling some echo or inkling that this all might have something to do with them. I pray that today and over the coming days, you would leave very clear indication to them that it is for them that you have come. And it is for them that this hope is extended. Jesus, I thank you for your kindness and your patience with us, for us. Truly, to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And that is the most liberating and wonderful news that we have ever heard. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.